The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, grateful for the chance to gather here with one another under your hand, to meet with you, to, to commune with you, to enjoy you, to hear from you, to respond to you in, in thanksgiving and in request. We're grateful for that chance. You've met us so far, and we pray now meet us again here in your word to teach us and build us up. That's, that's a request that you would meet us now to teach us and build us up and shape us. Make us increasingly like you. Deliver to us increasing sweetness of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Show us that now, Lord, and open up this passage before us to, to teach us and build us up and make us increasingly like you for our good and for your honor. We pray this. Thank you. Amen. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen frequent mention of God's kingdom. It's also called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Messiah, the messianic kingdom. It's all the same. It's, it's not a physical realm with geographic borders. It's, it's a spiritual kingdom that exists in the, the hearts of individual people, individual Christians, and then where those Christians gather together. It's another way of putting it. It's the kingdom is where the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is welcomed as king. Where God's values and God's laws and God's character and God's blessings are known and embraced and trusted. As this Jesus, this, this one here, is surrendered to and followed. That's the kingdom. And it, it is profoundly good because who he is and what his ways are are profoundly good. The kingdom of God. A frequent theme throughout Matthew. And so now as we come to this passage in the middle of Matthew 12, we're, we're going to see mention of one of the markers of the kingdom, one of the indicators that the kingdom is here and that it has begun. The presence and the work of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God. Long ago, back in the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament had, had promised, had predicted that one day God would move to set up his kingdom here in this fallen creation. And it also promised, predicted that, that when he did that, as he did that, there would be a, a sign, there would be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit of, of God to accomplish the work first, before poured out in mass, first on one called his servant. This, this Messiah, this, this king who was going to come in flesh. And we saw that actually two weeks ago when we were last in Matthew. That was... We saw it in, in the middle here in verses 15 to 21 as Matthew quoted the prophet Isaiah. Some 600 years before, Isaiah had said in chapter 42, there's going to be a time when the servant is going to come, the special beloved servant, and on him the Spirit of God would rest. He would bring this kingdom of, of justice. Remember, that was one of the main words emphasized there. He'd bring about the kingdom of justice. We'd look forward to that, and Matthew, of course, is saying, that's Jesus. 
That's the claim. A claim that calls for a response, especially when it's a claim that's backed up with supporting evidence and logical reasoning. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Supporting evidence and logical reasoning calls for a response. We're going to see that as well as the grace that is needed to respond. That's where we're going this morning here in Matthew 12. I'm going to read this passage. It's a long one from 22 down through 37. And it's largely, the, the tone of it is largely one of confrontation. Throughout, Jesus is, is disputing with the Pharisees. So this is a, a tense passage that has some hard things in it. And so it's a, a different, basically a different setting than, than ours here this morning, looking at this in a church, talking to people who most of us here are, are believers in Jesus. So there's a different tone here. But still, with that tone, there are still many things for us to learn, encouraging things, I think, as well as some warning here. So that's where we're going. Let me read Matthew 12, beginning of verse 22, down through verse 37. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew 12. Two observations that are of unequal length. The first one's longer, and here it is. It is eternally important to recognize and embrace the Spirit's work in Jesus. It is eternally important 
to recognize and embrace the Spirit's work in Jesus. That is what's going on here. The Spirit of God is at work in Jesus to bring in God's good kingdom. As we said right before, Matthew shows us that, that claim, and then he backs it up with evidence. Here's verse 22, with the healing of a demon-oppressed man. There, there's a man who is, because he is demon-oppressed, because of the evil affliction of this demon on him and controlling him and oppressing him, he's unable to see or to speak. And Jesus heals him. Now, at times... Lots of other times and lots of other places, the, the healing miracles or the casting out of demons that Jesus performs, they're, they're given a lot of detail. And they're described at length for us. But this, again, we've seen this before also. It's similar to what we saw in chapter 9, actually. The focus is not actually on the healing. It's just told to us just in one verse. The focus in the passage is on the response to it. This, this, this happened. There it is. What do you make of it? And there are two different responses here. On the one hand, all the people, all the crowds, all around are amazed. They are astonished at this. It's, it's, we read it and it's just words on a page, but can you imagine seeing such a thing? A, a man oppressed and, and demon-possessed, such that he is physically afflicted, just changed. They are pleasantly shocked, and they wonder, can this be the Messiah? They, they use the language of the son of David. That's language picking up on the Old Testament promise that when God sent his servant, when God sent his, his king to set up his kingdom, he'd be a king in the line of David. So they're, they're calling him Messiah, Christ, king. And they're asking just, just a little bit, maybe? They're not convinced. They're just opening the door just a little bit. I wonder if, could he possibly be the Messiah? First time they've actually asked that in this book. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, they have a very different response. One that has developed over some time as we've been watching this. It's now a hardened rejection fully against him. Up in verse 14, we saw that some of the local ones here, and this is certainly multiplied around the, around the area of Galilee, they are looking for some way to get rid of him, some way to destroy him, to kill him, to eliminate him, to discredit him, something or another. They are, they are dead set against him. And so their explanation offered to the crowds, we've seen this before also, nope, he is not the Christ. He is not. In fact, it's the power of Satan, the, the head of the household of demons, Beelzebub. It's by satanic power that Jesus casts out demons. This is demonic work. This is an evil man, and this power is satanic. That's the setup. Two responses. There it happened. What do you make of that? Two different responses. And it's not one positive and one negative. It's one kind of neutral, one, one exploring the possibilities perhaps, and one that is dead set hard against from bias. From resolved, convinced, biased opposition. And that's the one that Jesus addresses head on. So he's responding to the Pharisees' position here which is why he comes back to that in his conclusion in verses 31 and 32. They are very wrong from bias, from hardened opposition and deception, and he's going to expose that not for their sake. 
He knows where they are. He's going to expose that for the sake of the crowds who are watching and who are kind of evaluating this. He's going to say, let me show you why they are wrong and why, in fact, I am the one, the one promised, the one that you need. And he's going to do this with a very logical response. There's steps of reasoning here, beginning first with the general fact that any group, any house, household, any, any sports team, any kingdom that's divided against itself and fighting itself will fall. It, you need to be united together to fight against the opponents out there. Any, anybody, any kingdom, anything divided against itself will fall. An obvious truth very commonly known, and we shouldn't assume that Satan is ignorant of this fact. It's actually one of his main tactics. He does this all the time. He seeks to sow division on teams and kingdoms and households. That's what he does. He's aware of this. And so there is no way whatsoever that Satan is casting out Satan no way whatsoever that Satan is evicting demons and reversing all the physical effects of this attack. Healing people, speaking righteously, behaving righteously, pushing people towards the obedience and submission to the God of heaven. There's no way that he's undoing evil in all those ways. Especially not again and again and again. Somebody might, might surmise, like, well, maybe he did it once just to be like clever. Well, perhaps, but not again and 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 again again like Jesus is doing. No way. Divided against himself, he's doomed, and he knows that. The logic of this is so powerful. He could just stop there, but he doesn't. He goes another step. But for the sake of argument, suppose that I am casting out demons by the power of demons, that Satan is at work in me. Suppose that, okay, by what power then have you all said that your righteous Jewish ministers cast out demons when they do? Jesus is acknowledging that he's not the only person in the Bible or the only figure in, in Israel who ever casts out a demon. He's not unique because he's the only one. He's unique because of the volume and the power and the simplicity. He casts out demon after demon after demon, on and on and on, and he casts them out by saying, get out. And when they get out, they bow to him and ask him for permission to go to certain places. The, the magnitude of what Jesus does is, is what's unique about him. But from time to time, others did so too. They cast out demons too, and the Pharisees knew that. And when it happened, what did you say about that, you guys? You know full well that people don't do that. That power does not come from humans, and you have never before said that came from Satan because you already know the first point, that Satan doesn't do that to Satan. You readily, automatically, continually credit what they've done to God. So ask them. They'll judge you. They'll be your judges for this foolish, willful, obvious denying of what you're seeing. You have already shown that you know better. In fact, what you're seeing here, another step in his obvious logic here, you can't rob a strong man's house unless that strong man is in some way tied up, bound, and he's not going to tie up himself. 
You have to overcome him somehow. Somebody more powerful than him has to tie him up, and then you can take whatever you want that belongs to him. It's a, it's a logical scenario that is an obvious connection to what's going on here. Jesus is walking around, picking whatever he wants to take out of the strong man's house and taking it. That blind guy right there, that mute guy, freed, because I decided I wanted it. I'm walking through the, the strong man's house and taking whatever I please which tells you that someone stronger than him must have tied him up. That's what Jesus is doing, and he's, and he's connecting what's happening to this obvious reality that you have to overpower the strong one before you rob him. All of that leads to the only logical conclusion that he puts right in the middle of this little speech here for emphasis. I could be casting out demons and raiding Satan's house by the power of Satan, I suppose, but that makes no sense at all. And you don't even think that yourselves. In fact, the only other alternative, verse 28, is that I am the one on whom the Spirit of God rests in power. Like Isaiah predicted, I'm the servant more so than any other person who ever did anything at all like this, I do it again and again and again. Massive crowds of people healed of diseases, cleansed of leprosy, raised from the dead as storms are calmed and demons are cast out, not by Satan, that's the Spirit of God on me. Which means the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that is not a nice statement. That is not so Good news, the kingdom of God has come to you. It's the kingdom of God has come upon you like a wave crashing, Pharisees. That's his argument and his conclusion drawn and stated. It is completely contrary to what the Pharisees are saying and therefore Jesus' verdict, verse 31, therefore, I tell you this, what you are doing will never, ever be forgiven. Never, ever. Stern words from the judge. What you are doing will never, ever be forgiven. We move through this. We, we race through the argument and we come to that. We should come up full stop and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And throughout history, lots of folks have, and unfortunately have come up before that and then have made some big mistakes. This has generated, a, these couple verses, 31 and 32, have generated a whole bunch of conversation, actually far more than it should, in off on tangents that we never should have gotten onto, because what has happened is Christians have read 31 and 32 taken them out of context, which is always a big problem, taken them out of context, and then tried to figure out what is Jesus talking about when he says this sin that will never be forgiven, this sin that will never, ever be forgiven, this blasphemy of the Spirit that will never, the unforgivable sin. And then unfortunately, really unfortunately, some of us who 
are perhaps more sensitive in our natures. We, we hear that and we think about it and think and think and think, and then we begin to wonder, have I committed that? And is Jesus saying to me that I will never, ever be forgiven? And what? Keep it in its context. Jesus told us exactly what he means, and it's not you. He told us exactly what he's talking about. The sin that will never, ever be forgiven, the blasphemy of the Spirit, is what the Pharisees are doing right in this context, calling the Spirit of God and his work satanic. That is the blasphemy of the Spirit. That is sobering and cold wind in the face, but not in the face of the Christian. You don't do that. You can't do that. He's not talking to you, Christian. You speak a word against the Son of Man, Jesus. That's in this passage too, right? That can and will be forgiven in the normal way that forgiveness happens. Good thing. Because every person who's a Christian used to be a non-Christian. Every single one of us is a Christian. You used to not be a Christian. And during that time, there were all kinds of things that we did not understand, all kinds of things that we said and did wrong. And in many, many different ways, we stood against and spoke against Jesus. And bless God, that's what the gospel's for, and you've been forgiven as you've trusted him. But to speak against the spirit like this, to call the spirit satanic, that is different. A willful, proud, stubborn, deceptive rejection of God. There's nothing else that anybody could show these Pharisees. There's nothing they could explain to them. They already clearly understand it. They've seen. When was the last time you saw a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute healed? Probably not often, let alone dozens of times. They've seen things and said, I get that. The argument, Satan's house divided against itself. What, how do your sons do it? All that. Never mind that. The conclusion that I have decided that I am going to draw from that is that this is satanic. Never mind the evidence. That person can't get any more evidence that helps him. He's already taken his stand. Blaspheming of the Spirit like this is, is very different. Don't go there and don't follow them into that. That's, that's, the, that's the subtle implied warning to the crowds, the indirect warning to the crowds as they're watching this here. Don't go where these guys go. They are doomed. Don't go there. But the direct call about response is snuck in in verse 30. So you gotta look at verse 30. And I say snuck in because throughout, Jesus has been addressing and refuting the Pharisees. So the crowds, there's a whole big crowd all around them, they've been watching this kind of back and forth, like watching a tennis match. And then Jesus, so to speak, turns and pulls the ball sharply and hits it directly at the crowd. 
Because now he's talking to them. In just a second he says, of course, the Pharisees are not with me. Pulls it. But are you? Sitting there on the side, wondering if maybe, watching this go on, but not committed. I tell you that whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Pick a side, there is no middle. There are two sides of the net and there are no neutral seats all around. You're on one side of the net or the other, pick. And if you're not on my side, that means you are on the other side. That's a surprising statement to people who perhaps are sitting there thinking, we are giving this careful and honest consideration. I wonder if perhaps he is the Messiah. The longer you stay there, realize that spot is against me. If you're not on my side, you're on the other side. This is a deliberate confrontation of the attitude of the crowds there in Jesus' day who, who look at him and are amazed and remark about how impressive it is and how wonderful it is and how kind it is and how good it is, how, how much we respect this Jesus and how nice he is and how, how the teachings that he say are just remarkable. An attitude that is present today too. An attitude perhaps we could, we could call it of, of like uh, respectful wondering. Polite Tolerance. A, a, a non-mean-spirited, but also not very committed. I, I don't want to really pick sides here. This is very interesting, but, you know, there's a ton of football on this afternoon, and tomorrow is the national championship. Let's talk about that instead. And Jesus hits that directly and says, you're either on my side of the net or you're on the other side of the net. There's no neutral spot. Pick a side. Look at the evidence and pick a side. Outside of my side is outside of the kingdom against God. Headed to judgment, just like the Pharisees. Now, is it as bad as the Pharisees? Well, no. Where you are can be forgiven, but it needs to be forgiven because it is against God and against me. You need to wholeheartedly embrace this and not just politely, respectfully leave it alone. So there it is for us. Examine the evidence and pick a side, and I mean really look at it. Sometimes there there may well be people here in the, in the room for whom this speaks a, a direct word. You've grown up in the church. You've grown up all around this. Maybe you're, maybe you're a teenager sitting here and you've heard this a, a hundred times. And, and what you've got in, in your mind is another thing you know. I, I know all about this NBA team and I, and I know all about this TikTok trend and I know that Jesus did a bunch of miracles. Just stuff I know. Look at this. Maybe you've looked at this and you regard it as, that's pretty amazing. It's, it's actually, frankly, it's kind of fantastical. It's, 
It's like an amazing Hollywood movie. I see these things and they're just, they're just amazing, but in the back of my mind, I know it's all CGI. It's, it's fake. Look at this. It's not. Jesus did this again and again and again and again in front of people, many of whom did not like him at all. But they could not refute that it happened. It was real. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't deny that. They had to argue about how he did it. Not did he do it. He did it. Again and again and again. The miracles are there. The miracles are real. The miracles are telling us something. If this happened, and it did, it didn't happen by the power of humans, and it didn't happen by the power of darkness, which means what? Look at this. God is at work in Jesus to point out something. This logic has great force to it. We have to face this and respond. This Spirit of God has been poured out and rests upon this Jesus and is bringing in the kingdom of God already started. Look at that and pick a side. To not pick a side is to pick there's a heavy warning in this because where, where we get drawn up with the Pharisees we see we're headed towards judgment and he says, you're right there with them if you're not with me. There's a warning there that also carries a great promise in it because if the kingdom of God has come upon those who are against him, it also has come for those who are with him. The realm where God's good rule is carried out by God's spirit and brings the shalom, the peace of God that we are all longing for. The, the place where the justice of God is enacted. This is what you were made for. It's what you need. Jesus, this is, a, this is a stern passage and Jesus does mean to say, pick a side or else. But he also means to say, and when you pick a side, Get ready to enjoy it. The kingdom is my kingdom, and I am good. I show you that I, I relieve demonic oppression. I don't bring it. I bring goodness, not evil. That has to be put out there. That, that has to be made clear from this passage. However, I realize that most of us hearing this this morning, you have already picked a side. I understand that. And I, know, I don't know everybody here, but I know most of the people here, and I know, I know who you are. I know you've picked a side. And not just with giving lip service to Jesus, you actually have said, I'm yours. And I'm, I'm a laborer with you in the harvest. Not perfectly, but I want to grow in that. I, yes, you're his. So what's here for you? Well, this, uh, this week, we've mentioned this a few times, has, has brought our church a number of unusual, primarily medical concerns, and some are quite serious. That's uh, in addition to all the normal collection of life's difficulties that we're, that we're all always dealing with. But this has been an unusual week, and so I've been thinking about this passage this week in light of this week. 
so I've been kind of looking at this and, and wondering. I've, I've got to talk about the, what I just talked about, the, the hardness and the sternness, the, the warning and the call. But then I also wonder, you know, what does this argument that Jesus has with the Pharisees have to say to me, to us? What does it matter to me if, if I or one of my loved ones is facing a, a sudden, quite serious medical situation? Or, expand it a little bit if you like, I or one of my loved ones facing a serious financial crisis or, or demoralizing loneliness. I mean, January is one of the most depressing months of the year, not just because of the inversion. Because we come through all the holiday season and then there's this great crash. People who were lifted up by the holidays crash and those who weren't lifted up by the holidays crash. And some of us probably are sitting in demoralizing loneliness right now. or financial crisis, or in, in a loveless or even hurtful marriage, or, or, or. Now, there might be, there are, things that one should do in all those situations to address the problems of a marriage and seek medical help. Yes, I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. I'm saying while you do that, what does this matter? What, what does this have to say to that? This is actually, Christian, for you, a guide. So while you do that, while you take the actions that you can and should take, this should tell you where to set your hope. Not on the actions, but on something else here. As you watch Jesus destroy the Pharisees, you see something that is great good news to you. He is the servant of Isaiah 42. Stop and think about this. He is the servant of 42. God has established the kingdom of glory in you, in him. Justice is being, in part, executed and will be fully executed. Shalom is on the way. It has come a little bit. You, you live right now in this spot where you have a peace that passes understanding. You don't, it's hard to explain. You can't understand and explain why that is. But when you set your hope on these things, there is a, a rest. God, this God, my God, has it. Yeah. There's a rest there and one that will come in fullness one day. All of this is true. And all the words that you've spoken, all, all the ways that you've lived contrary to demeaning the Son of God, it's forgiven. He has acted to cleanse you, to make you a new creation, to make you a glorious child of God, an heir of heaven. And there is an inheritance kept for you, delivered to you in, in a little bit now as the kingdom has come, but it, the bulk of it is kept back in heaven for you. And one day you will go there and receive truckloads upon truckloads of grace poured onto you. That's true 
for you. How do you know that? Claims, 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 claims. Evidence and logical argument that demands a verdict. The evidence is that this Jesus actually walked the earth and did all of these things again and again and again. And logically, that has no other source other than from God. He walked the earth and did all these things. Ultimately, the pinnacle of this display is that he went to the cross, went to the tomb, and came out alive again. That happened. The kingdom has come. It is real, and it's for you. Indeed, seek medical help. Indeed, call friends. Indeed, seek to address all the the problems on this earth. But as you do that, set your hope on this. The kingdom of God is real and yours. This kingdom is perishing. No matter how good it is, no matter how many helps you have, no matter how many things get resolved here, it all ends in the same place, burned up. But the kingdom that is real is real. And how do you know that? Because the Spirit rested upon this one and did marvelous things and brought him out of the grave again alive and gave you eyes to see it and you know. That's the truth, Christian. That's the truth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, yours, is the kingdom of heaven already. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Envied. Oh, what a life you have. What a life I have. Have have you seen the things that happened to me this week or happened to us this last two weeks? What a life I have. Yeah, what a life you have. Blessed are you. And your heart says, I know that that's true. Even through tears, you say, I know that's true. This is your reality. And that's a glorious reality. Poor in spirit, with nothing in your hands, you needed God's grace to move on you and bring you to life, and he did. He did. That takes us to the second point. It is eternally, and I might add also temporally important, in this world important, that you grasp, that you embrace this reality, that the Spirit has been and is and will be at work in Jesus for you. The kingdom has come. But the second point, we need heart-changing grace to be citizens of the kingdom of God. We need heart-changing grace to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Verses 33 to 37 may seem to be starting a different topic, and at least in my English version, there there is a a heading put, put in by the printers that kind of breaks it off. I don't know what your English version says, but realize all, the, all the, the, the bold headings are not actually the Bible. They're put in there by the printers to kind of break it apart. So it seems like it's a different section, but there's actually still the same speech, and Jesus is still in the same context talking to the Pharisees still about words and condemnation. It's connected. So he starts with this familiar tree and fruit imagery. Verse 33, make the tree good, which is a manner of speech just kind of getting at the the logical order of cause and effect here. If you make a tree good, its fruit will be good. Not the other way around. You don't fix the fruit so as to fix the tree. Tree and then fruit. Fruit always follows the nature of the tree. So, verse 34, he then turns and blasts the Pharisees, calling them snakes. 
full of evil in their hearts, which is why they produce the fruit that they do, this blaspheming of the Spirit. So verse 35 then, there are, there are two types of trees. There are two types of people. A good person with a good treasure chest here hidden inside that pours out good. And then on the other hand, the evil person with the box of evil hidden here that pours out evil. And on the day of judgment, people will give account for what they've poured out for their words. He's speaking about words in this context because he's talking about words, but we could say actions they give account for the words they've poured out, for their careless words, it says in verse 36. That is, careless, that is, for their non-careful, non-calculated, non, I put so much effort into this to always get it just right sort of words. Spoken words that give the right impression, spoken to express the proper belief, to present in just the right way. Those careful, calculated, well-constructed words or behaviors, those aren't judged. Careless words are. But those aren't judged because they're meaningless. They're fake. We're putting on something. It's careless words, the ones that come out easy when you're not working at it. Maybe when you're in private with those you trust or in private all by yourself. Those words are the true reflections of the heart and that's what gets judged. So obviously the way to stand at the judgment when he says at the very end of verse 37 to be justified is to be declared not guilty. The way to be declared not guilty at the judgment is not just to fix your words. His punchline here is not so don't say such things. Guard your tongue. Now, is it good to guard our tongues? Sure, James talks about that. Yes, of course. But at the judgment, the answer is not guard your tongues, not fix the fruit. The Pharisees are great at faking it, and people like them always are great at faking it, great at carefully speaking the right theology. But everybody shows their true colors eventually. And when a person's words reveal... That he is not in humble, meek, wholehearted surrender to God. When a person's words reveal she is not in humble surrender to Christ's cross. Maybe those words only show up in your own mind all by yourself and you're the only one who sees them because you're really careful. I, I know some people who are just sticky, sweet, nice. And fake Maybe you're the only one with whom you are not fake. But when those words show up, you see who you really are, what do you need? Not better fruit and not different words. A different, better, good tree, a different, good heart. Something different in here that we cannot make happen. We can sometimes control our tongues and we can teach our kids to control their tongues, but we can't change their or our hearts. The kind of person who stands at the judgment justified has a different heart 
that only the Spirit of God can produce as he pours out grace upon us. This is the promise of the Old Testament of what would happen when the kingdom came. The Spirit of God on Jesus would not just do physical miracles. Those those miracles all have a message in them. They are all telling us something about the spiritual. He opens the eyes. He brings back life. He cleanses people. He casts out darkness. Physically, yes, All to point out, that's what I do spiritually. That's what you need from me spiritually. You need me to do that work in your heart spiritually. To make the tree good in here, that's what the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, does. Poor in spirit, we come to him and say, I I will not even try to stand at the judgment by cleaning up my language and correcting my life and performing better works and more of them. I realize I got nothing to contribute What I need is you to change me inside. Please help. And God says yes to that attitude. By my spirit, I will by grace make you a different person in here. The language of the Old Testament is I will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and that's how I'll move you to follow me. From the inside out. This is the great work that he has done in Jesus and will do for anybody who turns to him and says, please, with nothing in my hands I come and say, please, come to him. You need him. And if you've already come to him, you need him again today. You're a Christian, yes, amen. Amen. And you want to grow, you want to mature, you want to be different, you, you want to follow more closely to him. And how you get there is not by minding your manners and correcting yourself. It's by saying, please, Lord, still the same place. With nothing in my hands, I bring poor in spirit and mourning. I say, please help. And he says, here. And graciously falls upon you and makes you new again and again and again. That's the Christian walk. We're not saved by grace and grown by works. We're saved by grace and grown by grace. It is all by grace. That's the life that we want, the life under his reign as he works in our hearts by his spirit. He has begun that and will complete it. That is the gospel. That is good news. Hope for us who already have embraced it and hope for you if you will. Come. Let me pray. Let me pray. Lord, help. Lord, please help. Will you open our eyes and wherever, wherever we are, wherever each person's room is, wherever spot we each sit, will you open our eyes and draw us to you with open hands and mouths saying, Help. We need your grace by your spirit poured into our hearts. Help. Thank you for your provision and thank you for your willingness. Come now and help. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
please stand with us one more time. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.